Hey, if you have your Bibles today, I'd like you to turn to me, if you would, to 1 Peter chapter 1. We are continuing on in our series together, Living Hope in a Hopeless World. Peter was writing to a group of Christians who are a lot like you and me. They had never seen Jesus, but they believed in him. And they had come to Christ through the preaching of the gospel. They believed just like you and I have believed. And as they were living this out in their first century pre-Christian world, they were met with quite a bit of opposition, and suffering and trials were part of their experience. Well, what do you write, as the apostle Peter was trying to do, to encourage these believers to know that these trials have a purpose, it's not unusual what's happening to you, and God's going to bring something to you and through you that's going to pay eternal dividends. Well, he writes the letter of 1 Peter, a book about a living hope in a hopeless world. Peter was encouraging these believers by reminding them, you remember in chapter 1, that you are God's elect, you are chosen people, you were set apart in the power of the Holy Spirit to be obedient to Jesus, and you've been sprinkled with his blood. You've been given new birth into a living hope, and you've been given an inheritance kept in heaven for you that will never perish, spoil, or fade. And he said, though you rejoice in this now, you're having to go through trials of different kinds. But, he said, you are being filled with a knowledge and awareness of God's glory in you, and though you've not seen him, you love him, and though you do not see him now, you believe in him, and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Hardly how you would normally describe people who are going through trials. And he goes on to tell them, concerning this salvation, you are living out what the prophets have always predicted. And in light of all of this, he now brings us to an application section where it moves from this is who you are to this is how you live. And in verse 13, he puts it like this. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Let's pray together. Father, I have to confess to you today, this is very challenging stuff, but absolutely necessary. The holiness of God is something we've been given, but it's also something we're called to live. And we become acutely aware of the fact that we cannot do this on our own. But this is not an option. There is a hope that comes to the believer who begins to see the very holiness of God lived out in them. A hope that helps us to know how to handle all of our blessings as well as our trials. And so today, God, as we open this up, I want you to speak to us, beginning with me, that I might hear the calling and the hope of a holy life. And we'll thank you, God, for all that you'll show us in Jesus' name. Amen. Our granddaughter, Everly, turned two just a short while ago. We were in Bakersfield for her little party. She's scheduled to be the flower girl in our daughter Kimmy's upcoming wedding in October, Lord willing. So my daughter Kelsey and Kimmy bought her a little 
flower girl dress. And when we were in Bakersfield last week, it came, and they were going to try it on her. Now, we had been at a little party for a two-year-old, so she had junk on her face and junk on her hands, and she'd been in play clothes, kind of. And uh, I noticed that the girls washed her face, washed her hands, took off the play clothes before they even took the dress out of this protective packet. There was no way they were going to run the risk of getting anything on this dress. And when they tried it on her, man, she looked adorable. And when I was standing there, I said, hey, why don't you let her play out without, why don't you let her play outside with that for a while and see if it's comfortable? She'd love it. And I remember the girls looked at me, dad, no, this isn't for play. This is for the wedding. You see, they weren't using the words, but what they were telling me was, this dress is holy. It's special. It's set apart. It's not for common use. It's for a very specific purpose. Do you know that's the word that God uses to describe you and me? And all believers, true believers who follow Jesus? He calls us holy. He even uses the word saints, which is the, from the same root word as holy. It means the same thing. Saints are not spiritually superstars or superheroes. Saints are people who have believed Jesus Christ. They've invited Christ into their lives. They've been set apart by God for a purpose, his purpose. They're called holy. Peter was writing to persecuted believers about who they are and why they were suffering and that they had been set apart by God for a very special purpose. That's why he said in verse 13, therefore with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. See, we've been learning that hope is to have a desire accompanied by the expectation that those desires will be eventually fulfilled. Peter reminds these Christians that while they were suffering trials right now, they have a salvation which was part of their desire, a salvation that will be fully revealed and fulfilled when Jesus Christ returns. That's why Peter called what they had a living hope, a real hope, a living hope. And here he describes the hope that comes from living a holy life, a life set apart for God and his purpose. The word holy is really an adjective. It's describing an essential attribute of God. God is holy. He is pure. He is set apart. He is moral. He is unique. But when the word holy is used of God, it means so much more than that. In fact, D.A. Carson, who's an author, um, a scholar and a seminary professor wrote a book called The Love of God. And in that book, he asked a very powerful question about holiness. And he simply said, what does holy mean? When the angels cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty, do they mean moral, moral, moral is the Lord Almighty or separate, separate, separate is the Lord Almighty? He said, just to ask such questions demonstrates how inadequate such common definitions of holy really are. At its core, he said, holy is almost an adjective corresponding to the noun God. God is God. God is holy. He is unique. There is no other. Then, derivatively, he said, that which belongs exclusively to him is designated holy. And these may be things, 
as easily as people. So in the Bible, we find that certain censers are holy, certain priestly garments are holy, certain accoutrements are holy, not because they are moral, and certainly not because they in themselves are divine, but because in this derivative sense, they are restricted in their use to God and his purposes. Thus, they are separate from other use. When people are holy, Carson writes, they are holy for the same reason. They belong to God, and they serve him, and they function with respect to his purposes. So when Peter wrote this letter to those hard-pressed believers, he was writing to encourage them by helping them to remember they are God's holy people. Therefore, they were to live holy lives. Lives that were morally pure for sure, but also lives set apart for God and his purposes, even if those purposes included suffering for a time. Peter reminds them to be holy. In fact, it's written in the imperative, you must be holy. This is not an option. If you claim to be a Christian and a holy God is living in you, then you are to live this holy life. Because holy is what you are, and therefore holy is what you live. And when you see holiness lived out in you, it, it fills you with hope. It's the hope of a holy life. And Peter tells these believers God has called his people to live in the hope of a holy life. What is this holy life? A holy life, Peter says, is something we receive by grace from Jesus. And a holy life is something we live by obedience to Jesus. A holy life is something we receive by grace from Jesus. That's why he said in verse 13, Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. Last week I was sharing about my ineptitude at helping the kids with their math up to about third grade. I was good. After that, I was worthless. So you can imagine my interest when I came across this piece by Lev Grossman, who is a senior writer and book critic for the Time magazine. He was writing a piece about the hardest math test in the world. And he went on to say in there that every year, on the first Saturday in December, about 2,500 of the most brilliant college students in North America come to take what is considered to be the hardest math test in the world. It's called the Putnam Competition. How tough is it? Well, there are only 12 questions on the test, 12 math questions. It takes about six hours to complete it. And of the 2,500 students who qualified to take this test, of the brightest mathematical minds in North America, the average median score each year on the test is one point out of 120. You ready to take this test? You see, it becomes very, very obvious that no one is going to ace the Putnam Competition math test unless somebody gives them the answers. And you can be absolutely sure that no one is going to live a holy life unless God gives them his holiness. Only God is holy. So there is no hope for a holy life apart from God. In fact, God, speaking to Israel through Moses, said in Leviticus 20, verse 7, Consecrate yourselves and be holy, because I am the Lord your God. Keep my decrees and follow them. I am the Lord who makes you 
holy. See, God doesn't give holiness apart from himself any more than God gives life apart from himself. When God comes to live in you, you have life because God is life. When God comes to live in you, you are holy because God is holy. You are now set apart for him and his purpose. That's what the writer of Hebrews was saying when he wrote in Hebrews 10 and verse 10, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. We have been made holy. See, by believing in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and his sacrifice, we have been taken out of the world, out of sin, and out of death, and we've been set apart from, for God and his purpose. We have now been made holy. We belong to him. We are for his exclusive use. This is why Peter wrote about what he did in verse 13 when he said, Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. If we unpack this a bit, Peter's telling them, with minds that are alert and fully sober. You see, the word alert is an interesting word. It literally means gird up your loins or gird up the loins of your mind. Now, in the old days when workers would often wear robes, like in the first century, what it meant was for them to pick up the hem of their robe and tuck it in their belt because they were getting ready to move. They were going to be able to run or shift gears or go anywhere, and they didn't want anything encumbering them. These words, gird up the loins of your mind, came to be synonymous with being ready or being living prepared so that mentally you are ready to know who you are and to respond to the God who is active within you. Fully sober means free of intoxicants. Don't be distracted. Let nothing hinder you from remembering the holiness of the one living in you and the holiness he gives to you and who he wants to display and the holiness he wants to display in you. Don't let anything get in the way of that. You see, one of the things we forget sometimes as Christians is who we are. That if you're a Christian, a holy God has taken up residence in you. God doesn't live in buildings anymore. This, this building is not God's home. You are God's home. He lives in me. He lives in you. We are his body, his church. That's why when Paul was writing to the Corinthians, he said in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? What made God's temple holy was the fact that God came to live in it. What makes you holy is the fact that God has come to live in you. And who does he come to live in you in the person of? The Holy Spirit. Peter said, by God's grace, you have this hope. You have God's holiness in you. Remember, God is living in you, and God is going to come and be glorified in you and through you, his holy people, and all you have suffered will not be in vain. In fact, when Paul was writing to the Thessalonian church, another group of believers who were going through trials for their faith, he said in 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 5, all this is evidence that God's judgment is right, and as a result, you'll be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. 
on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you. It includes me. Because you believed our testimony to you. Peter told these believers in verse 13, Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. You've been set apart by God. He lives in you, and therefore you are holy. And he is displaying his holiness in you. And someday when Jesus comes back, that holiness that lives in you right now is going to be fully displayed. This is your hope. It's the hope of a holy life that you received when Jesus came to live in you. And not only something we receive by grace from Jesus, but a holy life is something we live by obedience to Jesus. Peter went on to say in verse 14, as obedient children do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. About 14 years ago, if I got my timing right, they built a brand new concert hall in L.A. It was called the Disney Concert Hall. It was the work of Frank Gehry. It was one of his landmark creations. It was a concert hall of glimmering stainless steel. And it is, was an awesome thing to behold. It cost $274 million when they built this. And even the people who lived across the street in a condominium complex there agreed that their view was glorious. But the glory became overpowering when the sun began to shine on that building at noonday. Portions of the gleaming concert hall reflect, reflect brilliantly into the windows of this condominium across the way that nobody anticipated. Soon, they said, the temperature rose as much as 15 degrees on sunny days, forcing the residents to get off the patios, draw the blinds, turn on the air conditioner until the sunlight shifted. You couldn't even see. And then the furniture would get really hot, said Jessica Legrone, 42, who lives on the fourth floor of the promenade residences. You would have to literally close the drapes, and you'd still feel the warmth in the house. Disney officials looked for a way to dull the glare. They placed mesh blankets over the mirror-like steel structure. But everybody agreed it looked horrible. And it did very, very little to cut the heat. You know, when I read that article in the LA Times, I thought, wow, what looked glorious at first really came to be an annoyance. In many ways, that's the same experience we have when it comes to Christians and God's holiness. When we come to Christ, we are grateful to learn that Jesus has forgiven us. He has washed us pure, that our sin is no longer taken into account, that we are purified, and we're made right with God and brought into relationship with him. We are drawn to the holiness that creates that. But over time, that very same holiness can become to be an annoyance because, you see, we still have these desires and things we'd like to do. As people say, it was a whole lot easier before I was a Christian because I didn't have all these guilt issues. 
There's things that we want to do from our desires that get in the way of God's holiness, and God's holiness is getting in the way of that. Not only that, but there's things that we want to do to fit into the world and feel more comfortable there, because none of us likes to feel like odd man out, and yet the holiness of God makes it harder and harder for us to fit into a world that's becoming increasingly unholy. So what do Christians often do? They don't mean to do it, but they actually veil the holiness of God so that its brilliance cannot be seen because they, their goal is not obedience to God, it's to feel comfortable. So often Christians compromise the holy standards of God so as to feel more comfortable in the world and to justify what we want to do. So Peter called these Christians not to comfort, but conviction. Not to happiness, but to holiness. Not to hide God's glory, but to let it shine. And people, when people hear this, I, people have asked me, Larry, if I get really committed to Christ and live for his holiness and obedience, can I still have fun? I say, what? Are you kidding? I have fun because I'm a Christian. That stuff you call fun that you're worried about giving up, I can tell you may seem fun for a season, but it's reaping a consequence for you that you're going to wish you didn't have. If you want real fun, then live with God because you'll never have doubts. God's ways are not easy, but they're always right. They're always right. So Peter said, as obedient children, don't conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. Don't conform. Don't allow yourselves to be fashioned, shaped, or molded by your evil desires or the pressures of the world. Instead, be conformed or rather transformed by allowing your life to be shaped and molded by God's will as revealed in his word. You used to conform to the evil desires when you lived in ignorance, but you don't live there anymore. In fact, that phrase, when you lived in ignorance, is literally in the time of your ignorance. Peter's telling them, you used to lust for and crave your evil desires because you were living in the time of your ignorance of God and his will. There was a time when you didn't know who God was, you didn't know what God said, and you didn't care. So you were living out obedient to these evil desires because you were in your time of ignorance. I live there. I'm ashamed of it, but I live there. Now, Peter said, you're living holy lives like God because you're not living in the time of your ignorance. Now you're living in the time of your obedience. You know who God is now. And now you can know God's will. So as obedient children, live this out. It's the same call to a transformed life that Paul was giving to the Romans in that famous passage in Romans 12, verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. This is your true and proper expression of God's worth in your life. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Remember, be alert and sober-minded. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Once in the time of your ignorance, you didn't know God's will. Now, in the time of your obedience, you can know his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And when that transformation process is underway, you will live a more and more holy life 
because it won't be you producing it. It'll be God producing it in response to your obedience. You see, we are holy because God is holy. We are being made holy as we live out this life in obedience to God. You remember that verse I quoted in Hebrews 10, that we have been made holy? Well, that same author went on to say in Hebrews 10, 14, for by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. We have been made holy, the author said, and we are being made holy. We were made holy when God came to live in us. Now we're living out the process of God producing that holiness in us. So listen to how Paul wrote about this process of being set apart from sin and being set apart for obedience to God in Romans 6, verse 8. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Who is it that's living in you? This Jesus who died to sin and now lives for God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Don't offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under law, but under grace. See, sin is always ready to enslave us. And when we lived in the time of our ignorance, we let sin enslave us. I didn't have a choice back then. All of us live in response to a master. You will either live in obedience to sin and its deprivation, or you will live in obedience to God and his holiness. Before, I couldn't make that choice. I had no choice. I was a slave to sin, and Christ was not in my life. But now that Jesus has come to live there, I don't have to give in to that sin anymore. I have a choice I can make. That's why when Christians come and say, you know what, I'm just stuck in this sin and I don't have a choice, that's a lie. That's a lie from the pit. I used to believe that lie, but not anymore. Now I know I have a choice. I can choose to listen to God and to obey God in that moment. I don't have this verse on the screen, but do you remember when Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to man. And with the temptation, God will provide the way of escape so you can stand up under it. That way of escape is obedience to Jesus. It's listening to him in that moment. You see, sin's evil desires are always ready to express themselves in our life. But the Holy Spirit of God is always ready to express himself in our life. So there is a battle between the flesh and the spirit, and you have to choose whom you're going to obey. Before, we didn't have the choice. Now we do. That's what Paul was writing about to the Galatians when he said in Galatians 5, verse 16, so I say, walk by the spirit, and you'll not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They're in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. So people say, well, if we're not under law, can we do whatever we want? No. No, you can't do whatever you want. 
You are now set free to be obedient to Jesus. That was an option you didn't have before. People, you and I cannot produce this holy life. I can't produce it, neither can you. But God will produce it. Be holy because I am holy, he said. And God produces this holy life, this life set apart for him that looks like him and displays his glory. God produces that in the lives of those who obey him. In fact, in Peter's second letter, in 2 Peter 1, he went on to say that God gives us everything we need to live a godly life. 2 Peter 1, verse 2, grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises. You see, his word. So that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. John put it like this in 1 John 2, verse 3. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. But if anybody obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. People, I can't live like Jesus did on my own, and neither can you. But Jesus can live like Jesus did in me, and he will live it in you. And he does it through the power of his Holy Spirit in response to our obedience, which is called a holy life. That's why the writer of Hebrews said holiness was essential to seeing God in your life. Hebrews 12, verse 14, make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Make every effort to be holy because without holiness, no one will see the Lord. You want to see more of God and his holiness operational in your life and the hope that springs from that? And we have to listen to God and we have to obey him. Peter said in verse 15, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy, because I am holy. Why do so many people, well-meaning people, fail at this? I don't think Christians ever set out to be unholy or ungodly or wicked. I don't think we do. But the problem is, we never come to convictions, I think. We never come to conviction that the Word of God is believable and doable with the help of the Holy Spirit. And so we live our lives more out of preference than we do out of conviction. And preferences are never strong enough. You see, people prefer to live an obedient life rather than a disobedient one. If I were to ask anybody, would you rather live an obedient life or a disobedient life, what are they going to tell me? I'd rather live an obedient life. Most Christians prefer to live a holy life, not an ungodly one. If you ask anybody, would you rather live a godly life or an ungodly life? Would you rather live a holy life or an unholy life? They're going to say, I'd rather live a holy, godly life, of course. But preferences aren't convictions, so here's what happens. We prefer that life, but then along comes these options. 
desires that we have, things we want that are left unfulfilled, the voices of our peers, the demands of the culture, all of these things come along. And so in the moment, we have a preference for a godly life, but we also have a preference for these other things that we really like. So in the moment, the preference of the evil desire wins out over the preference of obedience because preferences aren't strong enough. But you see, conviction is different. Convictions are to be convinced. See, I I know now that this evil stuff over here, as much as I may desire it, is nothing but a disaster waiting to happen. It'll draw me further from God. It'll only please for the moment. And it will destroy everything that God has built. And it will leave a wake of destruction behind me. I know that now. I'm convinced that if I live for God and I obey his word, even if it's hard, it will always be right. And in the end, I will never regret listening to what God has said. Convictions are formed in obedience to the truth and the power of the Holy Spirit. Convictions are seldom compromised on the altar of preference, convenience, peer pressure, or comfort. When Paul wrote his letter of real Christianity, real applied Christianity, in Ephesians chapter 4, he begins the application section. This is how real Christians live. It's very convicting stuff. He begins in verse 17. I want to encourage you to go to Ephesians 4, 17 sometime and spend some time looking over this all the way through chapter 5 and into chapter 6. Verse 17, I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do about the unsaved pagan nations do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding, separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity and they're full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ. And we're taught in him accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You are taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, and to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. What does a holy life of obedience rooted in conviction look like? Well, I don't have time to fully read this whole section in Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 25, but just listen to some of these things that begin to appear when you obey them. Each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. Tell the truth, not lies. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. Do not give the devil a foothold. Handle handle your anger in a way that God handles anger so that Satan doesn't get another foothold in your life. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their hands. They may have something to share with those in need. Get your mind off what you're going to get. Start thinking about what you're going to give. 
Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of what? Bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind, compassionate, forgiving as Christ forgave you. Follow God's example. Therefore, see the obedience? Follow God's example. As dearly loved children, walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Look at this. But among you, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. People, I confess to you, I honestly do not get this move in Christianity today, especially among young people who are profane and using profanity and vile language as though they think it's cool or it's funny or makes them hip. It isn't. It's vile. It's improper. It's wrong. It's an affront to God. You can be sure no immoral, impure, greedy person, such a person is an idolater. They're not thinking of of worshiping the true God, they're worshiping themselves. Such a person has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. He goes on to tell them what? You used to be darkness, but now you're light. Live as children of light. Then he tells them, wake up, rise from the dead. Christ will shine on you. He will live this life when you obey him. Be careful how you live. Make the most of every opportunity. The days are evil. Don't be foolish. Know what the Lord's will is. Don't get drunk on wine. Be controlled by the Holy Spirit. Sing. Make melody in your heart. Make music from your heart to the Lord. Always give thanks to God for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus. And God will produce the holy life. I don't know how he does it. He just does it. Be holy in all you do because I am holy. Now, I was reading a piece by Mike Howerton from a book called Glorious Mess, published in 2012 by Baker Bookhouse. And in the book, he was describing about a childhood experience he had playing mud football. After a huge downpour, he said, he and his neighbor buddies found a gully filled with two inches of standing water. And Howerton describes what happened next. He said, we had a blast. Every tackle would send you sliding for yards and yards. The ball was like a grease pig which meant tons of fumbles, gang tackles, and laughter. I remember tackling one of my friends and watching him skim across the surface of the water for something that seemed like four miles. And I'm thinking, I must be in heaven. And when he got up, I noticed something stuck on his shoulder. I peered closer, wondering, what is that? Now, there was a huge concrete sewage runoff drain right next to the gully. And apparently during heavy rains, all sorts of things got backed up. And I don't know if the apartment complex immediately next to the school burst a pipe or what. But I do know we didn't really pay attention to the flotsam that was floating around in the gully until I noticed that something, whatever it was, on Craig's shoulder. I peered closer and suddenly realized it was a soaking piece of toilet paper. In that same instant, I realized the smell surrounding me was a bit more pungent than a typical mud football game ought to smell. And it suddenly dawned on me. (laughs) And I yelled out, we're playing in poop water! 
He said, we all booked it for home as fast as we could. He said, talk about an instant of mental transformation. People, that's what life does to us sometimes as Christians. We're just going along, having a good time with our friends, not really paying attention to what's coming in our life and going out of our life or what's going on around us. We're just having a good time. Seems all harmless. Until suddenly some of the ugliness of what we're engaged in begins to appear in our life and we see it and others begin to see it and something doesn't smell quite right and I know as a Christian this isn't good and then suddenly I realize and I'm living in a spiritual cesspool. God, out of his desire to live the holy life in us, will at times burst into that and give us one of those revelatory moments where we suddenly realize that that's spiritual toilet paper sitting on my shoulder. That, that's something that's polluting my mind. This is full of disease. This is bad. This is wrong. This is not right. God, thank you for showing me before it's too late. And we can have a mental and moral and spiritual transformation if we will come running to God and embrace him rather than what the world is offering, rather than what our own desires are causing us to want to chase. People said that is, Peter said that is the holy life. Not a perfect life yet, but it will be when Jesus is revealed. But God has come to live in you, Peter said. By grace you have received him, and now you have this holy life the holiness of God in you that's going to be fully revealed when Jesus Christ comes. But you have it now. It's a gift. And you are called to live a holy life by obeying Jesus instead of evil desires. Be holy, he said, in all you do. Peter said this is the life God has called us to. He set us apart for this. We belong to him now. We're exclusively for his use. We're not to give ourselves over to the common things we used to when we lived in ignorance. Now we're to live in the time of obedience. We can't produce the holy life, but God can. It was the same message that Paul gave to Titus when he went to the island of Crete in Titus 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled and upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. That's the hope. That's the hope we have, Peter said. The hope of a holy life that God is desiring to produce in us and shine through us for all the world to see. Father, I want to thank you for passages like this. Very convicting, but very encouraging. To realize again who we are because you've come to live in us and how we are to live because you've come to live in us. Thank you for the encouragement today of all that we are and all that we are called to yet be for all that you have given and all that we are called to do. And I pray today, God, that more of the holy life that's yet to be fully revealed will be seen in us day by day as we are being made holy. 
realizing who we are as temples of the living God and living out this holiness as we obey and follow you. So God, help us with this. We don't get it right all the time, that our lives are moving in the right direction when with your help we are pursuing the hope of a holy life. And we thank you in your precious name. Amen.